A funny thing happened when I resurfaced from my hiatus and rescued the Jen Pastloff episode. To make this short, we had recorded the episode, I had melted down and completely fallen off the face of the earth. Then without any notice, we processed the episode and posted it. Jen had asked about me while I was out in the wilderness of my despair, but I was off the grid. So, because we have the most amazing group of humans ever as listeners, people started sharing their favorite quotes and tagging Jen. Sure enough, within five minutes, Jen reaches out to me and is like, Sam, I'm calling you. This was my biggest fear. I'm full of guilt and shame. The episode was originally supposed to be timed to help her book she had out. So I'm bracing myself for her to like chew me out or to yank the episode. Of course she doesn't. None of our amazing guests would do such a horrible thing to such a fragile soul like myself. But we hit it off. We fill each other in on what has been happening since we last spoke, which had been basically since we had the conversation. And she casually starts talking about her big leap. And she's like, oh, yeah, I moved to Ojai. I'm neighbors with Gay Hendricks now. I read his book, The Big Leap. I'm in it. I'm committed. I'm taking the big leap. Okay, Jen, I'll bite. What the hell are you talking about? And Jen does what she does best, which is what my mom would call benevolent pressure, also known as strong arming. Before you know it, when I'm hopping off the phone, I have a copy of this book (laughs) that I'm listening to. And this book isn't a stretch for me. Gay Hendricks has a PhD in psychology. He taught at the University of Colorado for 21 years. It's a really safe book to settle into. But then I come across the first concept of the book, Upper Limit Problem. Okay, so here's the premise. We're going to go deep into it in the show, but I'll just give you the basic idea. We all have an upper limit of how much joy and peace and prosperity and good times we can tolerate. And some of us, I'd wager most of us, have an upper limit problem, which means when we get too close to that boundary, we find a way, often subconsciously, always very creatively, to bring us back down to that nice, comfortable mediocrity or hellscape that we're comfortable in. If you've ever been in a great, amazing place and then pick a fight with your partner for no reason, or you start working out and you feel great and for some reason you just don't want to go anymore. So if you feel like a self-sabotager, just buy a copy of the book, The Big Leap. Just buy it while you're listening to the episode. You'll thank me later. You'll be super jealous of our patrons who got to read the book before the conversation and suggest questions and now get to watch this amazing episode in video www.patreon.com slash howtohuman, but that's besides the point. Gay and I are kindred spirits, and I can't wait to do a deep dive into his other body of work. His wife, Katie, is also a brilliant psychologist. They collaborate a ton. I can't wait to read the books. We're definitely going to try and get her on. My favorite thing about Gay is his ability to bridge the material scientific world of psychology and the ancient mystical world of spirituality into a really safe and healthy and true message. I want to be unlimited like I want to be unstoppable. What I mean by that is being unstoppable doesn't often look like the images that that word conjures up. Unstoppable doesn't actually suggest speed or inertia. It just means something that is able to keep going and not stop. If a snail decides to keep going, that snail is unstoppable. I want to be unlimited in the same way. Not being the Silicon Valley master of the universe, I'm going to build an empire and rule the world, but that I want to learn how to work through everything that is limiting my experience here as a human being. Here is my conversation with Gay Hendricks. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) We have to have a start for the listeners. 
I have become such a huge fan of yours over such a short amount of time. Your book, The Big Leap, got recommended to me, I think, less than two weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I've read it twice. I own an audio version and a physical version. I like to keep physical versions of the books I want my loved ones to find when I die. <laughs> so it, well, good. I'm glad the big leap is on your death list. It's on my death book list. I'll start the way I normally start, but I just want to say I've been seeing therapists the whole time I've been sober. So over the course of 10 years and my self-sabotage problem has never, I've never found an answer that quite fit. I found things that were more like, oh, well, that could be, that could be. When I heard the upper limit problem, which I was listening to the book originally for the first time, it just felt like this is it. This is in the right realm of what I've been trying to address. I'd count from when I got sober because my drinking and using career, while it was insane and chaotic and destructive, I don't think it was quite self-sabotage as what happened when I started to get sober and started to have a real chance at a prosperous life. That drinking and using was more like a misguided self-initiation. It was more a way to like, oh, well, everybody thinks they know my story. I'm going to try to keep up, kids. We'll see if you know my story. So since I got sober, my life has been like Samini Snicket's series of unfortunate events. <laughs> it has been giant roller coasters of great highs and great lows. I'll just go down the list a bit. I was a really good industrial design student and I had a complete mental breakdown and dropped out. I got a design job despite being a dropout and just couldn't stick with it. I co-wrote a book with my mom that was a New York Times bestseller and people were going, what's the follow-up? You're great. You can write. What's the follow-up? I couldn't jump on that. I started to make art pieces and I started getting gallery shows and I started getting recognition. All these things. I'm coming off of a almost two-year hiatus from the podcast. Every single one has this one thing in common. Can you guess what it is? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's that things were starting to go well. Things were starting to get really good. So what became the downfall of all these directions, the methods of which they happen are very different. There's psychological issues. There's physical issues. There's just this thing that used to light me up, no longer lighting me up. It comes in many forms, but I love the concept of the upper limit problem. I absolutely love it. I'm angry that none of my therapists had been familiar with your work. <laughs> <laughs> so now that I've gone on for a long time, I'll start the way I normally start, which is, Gay, who are you? Hmm. Well, great question. First of all, I want to appreciate you for a couple of things. First of all, I want to appreciate you for the big commitment, the big leap it takes to get sober. You touch on something there that I think a lot of people have told me that you don't really know what your drinking is all about until you stop drinking. And then you realize what you've been drinking to avoid or drinking for to try to create in your life that's missing. And I think there's a lot to that. I've heard other people say the same thing, that they really didn't discover their upper limits until they were out there with no chemical intermediation between them and the universe. I appreciate you for making that big, bold leap. Also, you're obviously a very creative person. The fact that you've tried various things, I think, is a good thing to embrace because one of my long ago mentors, Eric Erickson, the great developmental psychologist at Harvard, said that 
In your 20s, your job is to experiment. In your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. And in your 50s, thereon, you enjoy your life if you work it right. And so I think I'd like to appreciate all of those things that you did in your 20s and teens and all of that, both the addictions and the coming out of that and trying different creative things, because there's a tremendous tendency, I think, in human beings to focus on where you are and where you think you ought to be and get a whole bunch of negative thoughts rattling around in that zone between where you are and where you think you ought to be. But I appreciate the fact that you're opening up and accepting and loving all of those aspects of yourself. So who am I? Yes. Well, basically, for the last, oh gosh, 50 years, 52 years, I think, I've been on a mad, passionate mission in my life. I had a big enlightenment experience when I was 24 years old. If you were looking at me standing up here, you would see that I'm about six feet tall and I weigh about 180 pounds. I look athletic. If you roll back the clock to 50 years ago, I was grossly obese. I weighed about 300 pounds. I wore big, thick glasses. I smoked two or three packs of Marlboros a day. I was in a very unhappy making relationship that I'd been in for a couple of years and was desperately trying to get out of. But at the time, I literally didn't have enough money to move out into a different place. So I was sort of stewing in this very toxic relationship. I went out one afternoon to take a walk and clear my head. And I slipped and fell on the ice and had a big whoomp down on my back. And it didn't knock me out unconscious, but I call it I had an out of Hendrix experience because it was it knocked me out of my usual way of being with myself for about two minutes. And I had this incredible experience where I could feel down through a bunch of layers of myself that I'd never known existed. And I could feel a whole bunch of things I was angry about that I'd been carrying around in my body since I was a kid and had a whole bunch of things I was sad about, the death of my father, not knowing my father. He, he died before I was born while my mother was pregnant with me and I never had any contact with him. And I could feel the whole that that was there. I could also feel a whole bunch of things that I was bound up and afraid about and how my belly muscles were so tight to try to keep that fear contained. I could feel down through this layer of layers of myself. But the real magic that happened was as I embraced all of that, I became aware of this other dimension of myself that I started calling pure consciousness. People call it spirit or soul or something, but it's this, it's the thing that everything else is arranged inside of. It's the pure consciousness that holds all of our emotional awareness and other kinds of body awareness. It's the consciousness that would be there if you'd grown up in the house next door with totally different parents and different experiences, you would still have that access to that state of pure consciousness. And I had that experience during that two minutes. And as I was coming back out of it, I think I did something that saved my life. Actually, I know it changed my life, but I made a commitment to feeling that pure consciousness in every moment of my life. And ever since then, I've been finding different ways. First of all, I lost 100 pounds in a year by simply focusing on 
eating things that fed that spirit rather than fed my old 300-pound body. Everything changed. I started, I learned to meditate and I got into a healthy relationship, which was unthinkable given the relationship history of my family. Katie and I are about to have our 40th wedding anniversary. And so we created this entirely magical new kind of relationship. I just want to highlight the fact that this thing I'm calling pure consciousness was there all the time. And I had to create a whole bunch of, I think, painful experiences to finally hit bottom and kind of release that. And so when I say I've been on a mad, passionate mission, it's been to experience more of that. And also people who are interested in learning how to experience that through my books or teachings or whatever, that's my passionate interest also to communicate with those people who want to wake up in that particular way. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm going to do some housekeeping in, in just the material. You're also a PhD from Stanford, and you lectured at the University of Colorado for 21 years. And it's amazing to read a book that kind of touches the notes of the spiritual world, which I love, but also with a really informed psychology background. There's just a safety there, especially when you're in the self-help world, you can kind of go, uh. Well, I really appreciate Stanford and also where I got my master's degree in counseling because they just dunked you in it every day. You just did therapy all the time and you worked with people all the time and you, whatever came in the door, one hour it would be an elderly widow with depression. The next hour it would be a troubled kid who was getting kicked out of his class. And so what I loved about it though was the classes were good and everything, but I'll tell you what I learned in the classes was like this <laughs> compared to what I learned from the actual experience of just working with people day after day in my training. That was worth its weight in gold. For this conversation, could we start with what is an upper limit problem? How do we encapsulate that so we're all on the same page? Yes. An upper limit problem is when things are going well and you do something or something happens that then knocks you back down to a prior level of functioning. So the classic example that I started working with way back when I was working on my degree at Stanford, we, we had a counseling center there that often people from Silicon Valley would refer people to for us to work with them. So I worked with a lot of executives, Silicon Valley executives in the early days of that. And here's what would happen. They were all brilliant technology people, but they were all totally out of touch with everything under their neck and below, like their anger, their sadness, their scared, all the different things that human beings need to function was a kind of a blind spot for a lot of these folks. What would happen is they'd have a big breakthrough at work, get lots of pats on the back. Then they'd go home that night and have an uproar at home, and it would knock all the good feeling out of them. Or sometimes it worked the other way around. They'd have good connection at home and then go to work and their boss would slam them with something. And so that would knock the good feeling out of them. The upper limit problem, it's like a governor or a brake pedal on your speed so that if you get to a certain place, you go beyond what you're comfortable with. It evokes fear and that fear causes you to do certain things that are destructive. Like worry, for example. Worry is a classic upper limit problem. Notice next time you're feeling really good, how long you allow yourself to feel good before you start thinking negatively or inject some criticism again. 
most people can't do 10 seconds of feeling good without having some kind of entrance of a negative thought or something like that. That's what one of the most important things you can do, by the way, is to make a commitment to increasing the amount of time every day you feel good in your body and things flow well in your relationships. Take your attention off of the specific problems or trying to solve particular problems and just notice how much time you allow yourself to feel good before you put on the brakes and create that upper limit problem. So think of an upper limit problem as a speed bump on the road. So you're driving along and it says speed bump ahead. Why I say that is because almost always before you do some kind of big upper limit thing, like get sick or have an accident or start an argument with your beloved, before you do one of those big loud things, you've often seen it coming. If you pay attention, you can see the beginning of it, just like you see the sign that says speed bump ahead. So you make some adjustments and slow down and go over it consciously, maybe gently, so you don't wham, hit the thing straight on. So make a commitment as soon as possible to feeling good in your body more and more every day and having things go well in your relationships more and more every day, because that commitment gets you focused and heading in the right direction toward measuring the amount of time you're in the flow rather than focusing on solving particular problems. With your psychologist hat on for a second, one of the trite things that gets thrown around is like, oh, well, you have a fear of success. And that it just never felt quite right to me because like the hell I do, I, I want success. I get success. I hit these major milestones. I, as a design college dropout, had a design in the New York Smithsonian for five years for this thing called the kicker helper for kids in wheelchairs. It's not success. It's more like a fear of death. I don't necessarily mean literal death, but I think those are the switches going off in me is that same kind of save yourself from the giant cat. Because to tie it into some of the concepts in your book where one of the limiting beliefs is outshining others, that's a contract I had to sign as the son of a famous person. That is a contract. Mm. You are this, the, you are this, the side character. That's where you are, Sam. You're my accomplice. You're not the, the main character in the story. So what I mean by fear of death is I will get the success and then the catastrophe will strike. I mean, this time was the worst in, in my entire life. It was a full spiritual experience. It is what I would call a dark night of the soul or an ego death or a death and rebirth. I literally went to the underworld and clawed my way out because of this experience, I believe when I read about the underworld in mythology, I don't believe they're talking about a mystical place. I think heaven and hell is very much here in this right realm here. of existence. It was brutal. I've had clinical depression for many, many years. I would say at least since puberty, I've had what, what could easily be diagnosed as clinical depression. And it has manifested in suicidal ideation and all that. But this time it was different. I could feel something about it. And I was going to psych hospitals. I was going to psychiatrists. I would literally go to the Kaiser psych department, talk to a therapist in LA while I'm traveling to interview a guest and then leave and go do the interview and then go back. It started with what felt like I think I'm dying. And that's literally what it felt like. I thought, you guys need to test me for everything. I have some terminal disease. Something is very wrong in my body. 
they did the first round of tests and they say, oh, it's, oh, it's nothing, you know, and I say, please keep testing, please keep testing. Eventually they found physical markers of something being wrong, not terminal like I thought, but they're saying, hey, you know, something is going wrong with your hormone levels. You have very little cortisol and your testosterone's low. And so I had physical markers. I believed I was physically sick until much more recently in the healing process. Now I'm more willing to say this was psychosomatic in some way. This somehow did start with, I think it started with the success that the the show was finally paying for my life, that the show was getting bigger. We had just gotten a million downloads. We're getting the biggest guests ever. Something tripped and it ended up in this catastrophe. I mean, first it was the physical ailment and then came the mental part of being disabled. It was very strange to be 32, I guess I was 30 at the time, and just have very limited energy. It's been a long way back. So what, as a psychologist, what exactly do you think, what would you say is happening? I really do think it did start in the mind, even though there's all this physical stuff, even though my hormones were fucked up, excuse my language, I was physically low energy without being depressed. I do think it started because of what you captured in, in the book with The Upper Limit. Yes. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that. What I think goes on is those fears that I talk about in The Big Leap, the one you mentioned, the fear of outshining. By the way, I grew up, my mother was a famous writer. So you and I have that in common. I never got to write a book with her, but she passed away when I was 45. But she was a great soul, a daily newspaper columnist down in Florida where I grew up. Also mayor of her town, too. So there was lots <laughs> to uh, being a, quite a fuck up as a young person, being obese and getting in trouble and things like that. I was constantly being referred to the fact that I wasn't performing as well as in life as I should, given my genetics. But I think that what you're talking about really is a form of the most fundamental fear that human beings carry around, which is the fear that I am fundamentally flawed in some way. The way to approach that is to let your awareness go right down through the middle of that. And an old friend of mine, Terence McKenna, who used to live up your way, said one time that our evolutionary task is to admit our minds into our body and admit our bodies into our mind. Those two things working together as you allow the awareness capabilities of your brilliant mind to descend into your body and you allow the incredible information that's being stored in your body to come up into your mind, that's what ultimately makes you whole. And to do that, though, you often have to let your awareness go down through that layer of feeling that you are fundamentally flawed in some way. To let yourself open up and embrace that in the spirit of Walt Whitman's great phrase, I am large and contain multitudes. One of the multitudes that you contain is that fear of being fundamentally flawed in some way. Paradoxically enough, the only way to clear fear out of your body is to actually love it as it is. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't transform itself until you can accept and love that fear of being fundamentally flawed as it is. When you do that, it frees up 
the energy of it so that you can then go beyond it and open up and feel more of that experience of pure consciousness that you then have the fear, but it doesn't have you because you've opened up a space in yourself of full embracing and loving of it. Yeah, it's one of the themes that you talk about in the book that is a recurring theme in these conversations is to feel your feelings mm -hmm. and not necessarily to act on your feelings. When somebody is talking about their feelings, I'm always like, hey, your feelings are important to you. <laughs> they might not be important to me, <laughs> you know, your feelings <laughs> on this matter. I'm sorry if I stepped on your toes or something, but it's important that something I said triggered you or it's a clue into something going on. What is actually happening? Have you read the literature on kind of psychosomatic illness? Like you mentioned things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome and these things that tend to pop up. I could have easily gone down that road. Everything from Lyme disease to black mold. There's lots of things getting thrown at me of why I had zero energy. What is actually happening in the system? How is it possible that, say, the anniversary of my dad's death or the podcast being so successful is actually hijacking the system? What is that link? The link is that when you get to a level of flow or success that you haven't been in before, it brings that old fear to the surface about I don't deserve this, or who am I to have a successful life? You get into that fear, and then it triggers an upper limit behavior of some kind. The only way through that is to get better at spotting the fears that are under that and to gradually open up and embrace the fears so that they don't keep evoking the next level of self-sabotage. I never use the word fear of success. To me, that whole fear of success idea is stunningly superficial because to really understand it, you've got to get underneath to the emotional underpinnings of it. Because what happens is that most of us don't know enough about our feelings to be able to deal with them in such a way that it gives us an evolutionary leap forward. It's a lack of training. Nobody ever sat me down when I was in the first grade or second grade or junior high school or anything and had an hour about, here's how to handle your emotions. Here's what your fear is about. Your fear is about not having a solution to the problem at hand. Here's what your grief is about. That's about loss. Here's what your anger is about. Anger is about unfairness and violation. I would have loved to have heard those kind of pieces of wisdom, but I had to find them out the hard way by messing up relationships and seeking help and that kind of thing. It's one of my pet beefs is that we don't give kids more emotional resources in the growing up process. Maybe it's different now, but I got through elementary school and high school without anybody ever saying a word about relationships or how to solve a problem without making somebody wrong or how to let yourself experience your emotions rather than acting on them all the time. Those would have been usefully kind of things. I have a background in psychosomatic psychology. In fact, I used to teach a course when I was at the University of Colorado. I was the chairman of the counseling psychology department for a number of years out there. One of the things we taught a lot was how to teach emotional intelligence to people. One of the most important things you can do as a healer, as well as a human being, is model emotional openness. Because if you do that, 
you're giving people more access to their emotions. Since we don't get any training out there in our educational system, most of us have to kind of thrash around quite a bit in our teens and 20s to get a kind of a crude education and emotional intelligence the hard way by putting ourselves in terrible, untenable situations one time after the other until we get to a point where we kind of bottom out with our emotions and get to a point where we have to accept ourselves as we are, then move on from there with a new commitment to life, which you certainly did with your sobriety. The important thing always is to be making choices that lead you deeper into yourself with the intention of uncovering that pure consciousness. The payoff of doing that is that it completes you with your past. As you experience the full range of your emotions, some of them that have been there since before you were born, the more you open up to that pure state of consciousness, what happens then is the other problems in life kind of fall into place and begin to clear themselves up spontaneously rather than you having to do anything active about them. So a good example of that is someone told me that they had an incompletion with someone. They were driving in their car and they realized they were mad about something the person had said and also felt hurt about that. A good bit of the time, we don't realize those things till afterwards. But my uh, client said, as soon as he realized that, he pulled off the road and called the person and talked to the person about it. That's a very useful skill to have. In other words, instead of stewing on something that you have no control over, actually do something that you do have control over. I always tell my students that most problems in relationship can be cleared up with a 10-minute sweaty conversation. And so he had to have a sweaty conversation with that person, but they got it all handled in 10 minutes rather than going around stewing on it for the next hour or day or lifetime. So correct me if I'm wrong, but are these problems caused by not properly integrating what happens to you in the physical world into a story that makes sense into your own mind and body? Is it that there's something off with the narrative that you might think you're not worthy, but now in the physical world, something worthy is happening or vice versa, that you think you're the greatest thing ever, but the rest of the world is reflecting that you're an ass. Mm -hmm. Well, you're an adventurous person, Sam. So let me just put it to you bluntly yourself. What was it in you and what is it in you that when you tune in, do you feel is fundamentally flawed about yourself? when you're into that negative zone of thinking? So for me, there's a big story that I was this incredibly gifted kid. I know you're not allowed to say that, but I was brilliant and I was introspective and I was weird and hungry for knowledge as a kid. At the age of 12, I find drugs and alcohol, which was the best thing that somebody with a lot of fear and a lot of worry about death and a lot of worry about what other people are thinking of me. It was like before drugs and alcohol, I could go into a classroom and almost, it was all in my mind. I'm not saying that it was real, like mind reading, but I could almost feel what every other person was thinking <laughs> in that room. I was just crunching too much information at once. Like, oh, this person's sitting on that side of the room. So that means they're looking at the right side of the teacher's face. It was just too much information. So when I found drugs, it was a relief. It was a real relief. I had a very intense 10-year run on drugs that ended up with me on methamphetamines. The big belief is that I was fantastic and that I broke myself. 
I met people who I fell deeply in love with and screwed those relationships up and that I have wrecked myself in a way. So it's not a creation story that I was created messed up. It's that I was created great and then screwed up or my mom screwed me up or my dad, who was also not in my life, screwed me up. Yeah, well, that's one narrative about it that works for a while. As you get up into your 30s, especially when you get up knocking on the door of 40, I mentioned earlier the thing about your 30s are when you find your life, or you begin to really tap into your genius. If you're interested in that sort of thing, you become more evolutionarily oriented. You begin to be interested in personal growth and helping other people with their personal growth. Those are the kind of things that gifted people get into in their 30s. There will be a time as you proceed along in your 30s that you get more and more and more aware of those old influences like the fear and where the fear came from and those kind of things. The ultimate payoff, though, for exploring those things is the full ownership of your life and realizing that you make it up from scratch in every moment. That realization doesn't usually dawn on people until they're in their 30s. But I remember where I was actually sitting when that dawned on me that, oh my gosh, all those things in the past are things I have absolutely no control over. And what do you do with things you don't have any control over? Well, Ah, you just accept them as they are. And in that moment of acceptance of what you don't have any control over, that opens up a space for the reinvention of your life according to your new conscious intentions. I appreciate you for making those moves. And maybe on a daily basis, it doesn't feel like you've made those moves to the extent that you want to. But I want to uh, encourage you to stay out of that zone of negative thinking and put your attention more on celebrating where you are and how far you've come and celebrating your vision and those kinds of things rather than putting as much attention on what you haven't accomplished. I'm at that place again where I'm starting to feel better. The dreams are starting to come back. The energy is starting to come back. I, I wake up and, and want to move my body and want to eat healthier foods. And there is this terrible feeling that, oh man, this is, the shoe is going to drop. Like mm -hmm. the shoe is absolutely going to drop. What could easily be seen as a lack of discipline. Through one lens, you could see it as like a lack of discipline where I'll start working out, I'll start eating healthy, and then just won't stick with it. We both know that if you don't stick with it, if you're not consistent, you don't get the rewards. If you do get the rewards, you don't get them for long. There's a, a question I have for you. And why do we have these wants, which I don't really call wants because I'm very careful with that word. I feel mm -hmm. like if you want something, you're going to actually do it. So if you want something, but you're not doing it, you want to want that. Why do we have these wants where we want to take great care of ourselves? We want to be great people, humans of virtue, but we have such a hard time actually doing it. Like myself, I'll just mention, I know that if I wake up and I meditate in the morning, I just do better. I know that if I wake up and exercise in the morning, I just do better. I know that the stories I love, the myths I love, the TV shows I watch are all these arcs of people really dedicating their lives to something meaningful. How come it is so hard to bridge that gap between 
that ideal, this ideal Sam that I have in my mind, who is this really kind and gentle and strong human who does the work and the, the Sam who just, when it's time to sit down and work on my project is not doing it. Yes. Well, one of the things that I think will happen as you go along in your 30s, you'll extend your heart and open your heart more toward those aspects of yourself. Right now, you hold them as problems because you have a past history with them. Another way to hold them is that they are all things that are crying out for your love and acceptance. As you open your heart to those aspects of yourself, your procrastination, laziness, whatever you want to call it, your self-sabotage, as you open your heart more and more to those aspects of yourself, they have less and less of a grip on you. There was a day when suddenly, to me, a fresh, crisp apple tasted better than a Hershey bar. If you'd asked me that the year before, you would have said, would you rather have a Hershey bar or an apple? I would have laughed at that. You know, <laughs> of course I want a Hershey bar. Everybody would want a Hershey bar. But now I, in a way, I can't imagine eating a Hershey bar, but I eat apples all the time. So as you keep choosing this more and more, it becomes easier. But let me ask you another direct question. I ask this of anyone that needs to experience more love toward themselves. When you survey all of the people in your life and the people you've known, who is someone that you absolutely know that you love? Can you just oh. give me an example? Yeah, my best friend, Reese. He's actually Reese. here right now. <laughs> hey, Reese. Okay. And yeah. you absolutely know that you love Reese. Yeah, we have become brothers. We've become family over the years yeah. that we've known each other. And how long have you known Reese? Seven, eight years. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's a beautiful thing. Now think of the way you love Reese, okay? Just feel it in your body. Kind of tune into it. How do you feel that? Is it a warmth? Is it a flow? Is it... You don't need to answer these questions. I'm just asking you in a way to steer you into what those body sensations might feel like. Like there's a way you love Reese that might be different than the way you love somebody else in your family. They feel a little different. So feel that way you love Reese. Okay? You got a sense of that in your body? I do. Okay. Now love yourself just like that. It's tricky. It is tricky. Give that Reese love to your procrastination, for example. Just love it unreservedly. Just like Reese loves that part of you, it doesn't bother him that much. Even when you procrastinate, he doesn't stop loving you, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I want you to have that kind of always on Reese love toward the aspects of you that you struggle with. You've spent a lot of time struggling with them. Now I want you to take some time off from that and just love them as they are for a while. Experiment with that for a while because it makes you operate in a much higher vibrational rate when you do that because you kind of put your intention on celebrating something rather than trying to restrict something. This has a different vibrational feel to it. Yeah. When I go inside, I notice there's, 
it almost feels like this might be like a muscle because it feels yeah. very underdeveloped when I do it kind of somatically right now. Yeah. It, it feels like, okay, okay, okay. That's enough. All right. That was a fun experiment, but that's enough with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it wants you to put on the brakes. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's how we learn to do it in life. We learn to put those brakes on those things. I don't know if you ever run across John Bradshaw's work. He had a great book on shame many years ago, the shame that a lot of people have inside. He grew up in a very conservative religious family. He tells a story of when he was learning how to identify his body parts. He came into the living room and he pointed to his eyes and says, these are my eyes when he was a little boy. And everybody went, yay. He points to his nose and said, this is my nose. Everybody went, yay. And then he pointed to his penis and everybody went, no, 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 no. Because every family has strictures on different feelings. In one family, it's not okay to feel angry. In another family, anger is all they feel. It's an uproar all the time. I grew up in a Southern Protestant family where emotions were pretty much off limits. You were roundly shamed for having uproars of any kind. The idea, though, was to contain those things, not to open up and be with the energy of them. So one of the things that every conscious human being has to do is get into a friendlier relationship with all of their emotions, including whichever one that happens to be the big one for you. Some people have a difficulty with anger. and Some people have difficulty accessing or expressing sadness. That was one of my problems. I just didn't have any capacity in my early days for letting myself feel sad about things. In fact, I remember my brother once, I got hit in the head with a baseball and I started to cry with these other kids. And my brother was saying, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. I don't know what I was supposed to do when a baseball hit me. But the idea in my neighborhood was that crying was a very bad thing. Same thing with fear, with a lot of men in particular, don't like to admit they're scared and like to maintain a macho presence with that. It took me a long time just to be able to talk about my emotions just like I would talk about anything else. I'm sad or I'm scared or I'm angry. I had very difficult times saying those kind of things, especially in relationship situations. Fortunately, my wife and I, Katie and I, when we got together, we've been together since 1980, many more years than you've been on the planet. And one of the best things we ever did for ourselves was make an agreement with each other that emotions were okay, that the important thing was to be honest and speak honestly about them, not to hide them. So we developed a philosophy we call reveal rather than conceal. That has really saved our bacon or saved our tofu if you're a vegetarian more often than not in the heat of the situation. So in that vein, just on the relationship front, when somebody is revealing their feelings, how do you hold space for it without taking it personally or taking action? Because obviously I think I'm not alone when I say my first reaction is to feel put down. Yeah. How can you have that feeling based off of my actions? I am a perfect human right now. Yeah. So the default with many people is to go defensive. If your beloved says to you, you really hurt my feelings today when you did dot, 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 until you've trained yourself pretty carefully, the default is toward well, wait a minute, no, 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 and to invalidate their experience rather than simply listening to it and doing your best to open your heart to it. That's a cultivated skill that takes a lot of time to develop. I think you should give yourself plenty of credit for even knowing a tiny bit about 
that sort of thing. To have the idea, the intention that you could be with somebody else's feelings in a way that didn't get you triggered, that's a great goal to have. But I want you to be very patient toward yourself in reaching that goal, because most people don't master that anywhere near being 32 or 33 or whatever you are. I think that more celebration is called for of of where you've come so far. Is that defensiveness the same mechanism that we see in the upper limit, in avoiding dangerous things and trying to stay protected? Are they part of the same vein? Yes. Well, think of it this way. To keep it very simple, human beings, just like the universe around us, are constantly expanding and contracting. When we get into some emotion that we don't know how to deal with, the tendency is to contract against it. That, the moment of contraction against the organic flow, whatever the flow is, whether it's the flow of anger or the flow of sadness or the flow of fear or the flow of sexuality, whenever we clamp down on that instead of inquiring into it, opening up to it, every time we do that, it sends off sparks of distortion. Just like when you put the brakes on your car, if the thing isn't aligned properly, it throws off sparks. You see that in race cars when they're whizzing down there, they throw off sparks a lot of times. Those sparks in our minds are negative thoughts of various kind. Thoughts about our unworthiness or thoughts to justify our behavior. So our mind is full of lots of little tricky moves it can use, like justification and things like that, that throw us out of the flow. So for example, one of the breakthrough moments of my life with Katie was early on, about maybe a year into our relationship, I had a moment where I was criticizing her for something. I can't remember what it was. I think she'd come home late or something like that. But I was criticizing her for it. As the words were coming out of my mouth, I realized they sounded angry, but the feeling down in my body was fear. So I was scared, but I was saying something with an angry tone to it. That was a huge moment of revelation. It taught me two things. One is that whenever you're angry at somebody, there's something deeper that you're scared about that you need to talk about. In that moment, I blurted out just what I said. I said, I'm listening to my voice, yeah, 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 I criticize you, but I realize my belly is tight and I feel fear down in there. I'm scared. I just blurted it out. I'm scared about something. I remember the look on her face. She went from eh, getting criticized to, oh, it was like it engaged her because I was telling what we in our trainings call the microscopic truth, not the truth filtered through your mind, but the truth just right out of your body. I'm scared. I don't know why I'm scared. She said, well, tune into it. I said, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. Now, that changed everything in our relationship because I was honest about something at the very core of myself rather than filtering it through angry communications or filtering into angry thoughts. So just to go to the source and say, I'm scared of losing you, her eyes widened. It was a pivotal moment where she said, oh, 
well, I don't have any plans to leave you. I said, I realize it has nothing to do with you, that it was just an old program of abandonment that kicked in when I got to a certain level of love and affection toward her. This old program that was based on stuff that happened 30 years ago when I was an infant. I kind of did have an abandonment in the sense that my mother was not able to take care of me. When I was just born, I was given to my grandmother, another family member, and spent a lot of my first years with her. So there was a bit of confusion about who my mother was at the time. And so I think it set up a rattle of abandonment in me. That would come up in my relationships. But then what I would do is I would turn it into anger and push the person away. So the idea was that if I kept them at a certain distance, I never cared about them enough that it triggered that old sense of abandonment. Once I unconceal that and let go of trying to control that, wow, the level of intimacy between us just went up a quantum degree till that thing was no longer, that abandonment script was no longer running between us. So we could feel the flow of intimacy a lot more. Those became typical kinds of things that happened throughout the early days of our relationships. We would get to these points where we were stuck and then a breakthrough would happen and we would go on to the next level. Wow. While we're talking about relationships, romantic, platonic, friendships, and family, one of the things I've noticed in myself and in other people is there's often a rift when one party in the group is growing and wants to grow and another person does not. And you could see this in your group of friends. If you guys are all a bunch of hippie underachievers and just here to have a, a good time and somebody says, man, I really want to start my career. You can see it causing problems. It's really hard that we're not in control of one another. If you are working for a company and you want the whole company to kind of rally and do much better, give up to their full potential and everyone else is going, ah, I like the, I like my schedule. I like the way I work right now. I think it has something to do with the false belief you mentioned in the book, which is don't shine too much. And I think that's my kind of master belief is don't get too big. Don't shine. Don't outgrow your surroundings. I experienced that early in the podcast when it started to be successful. I experienced some of my friends at the time. I'd be like, hey, did you listen to this episode? It's amazing. Like, I I like hanging out with you, but I don't want to hear your podcast. And just kind of like a meanness, resistant to me doing something new and not working for a corporation anymore. How do we ourselves grow while our our surroundings might not match that? People might not be cooperative with that, but we don't want to necessarily ditch everybody and move to a new town and go by a different name. (laughs) I want to keep these people while still growing, even though it does upset the, the homeostasis. Well, one thing is to consider one of those other big fears that I mentioned in The Big Leap, which is the fear of abandoning, leaving people behind or being disloyal to people in the past who have different beliefs than you do. That's one of the big fears that a lot of people carry around. You limit your growth because you're afraid that if you really go all the way with your genius, you'll have to leave behind a bunch of people. That's the belief. One way to start dissolving that limiting belief is to develop more awareness of what the real fears are. So for example, when you think of some of those friends, like call to mind one or two of them that didn't want to listen to your podcast, okay? Think about them for a second. And if you extend your awareness into them, what do you think they're scared of? 
We know they can make sarcastic comments and all that, but underneath every sarcastic comment is somebody saying, I'm scared. What are they scared about? I think they were, I mean, I can only imagine, but I think that they had their own dreams and dream projects that they weren't doing. And and me doing it, I was almost a mirror of their unfulfilled goals. And, yeah. And you were a little irritant going, eh, 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 why aren't you expressing your genius more? Even if you weren't doing that overtly, obviously in their mind, you are. Most of your listeners face the same kind of issues that you and I did growing up. We were quite gifted. And I know it's a difficult thing to just say out loud, but you were gifted in many ways. I was gifted in many ways. You and I are privileged in such immense ways that it's almost painful to contemplate. In my culture, being born in a Caucasian body growing up in the South, that was a big break. It was like being born on third base. You didn't have to go as far to be successful. Growing up with privilege and with also cognitive brilliance and maybe coming from a distinguished background where one of your parents is famous or something like that. Those are all kinds of things that cause, I mean, they're great, but they also cause lots of resistance to that, especially in the fear of outshining. Because you didn't, when you were in the second grade, you didn't want the other kids to say, hey, Sam's that smart ass that always knows all the answers. You didn't want to walk around with that kind of reputation. And so you had to tamp it down. You had to hide your light more. That's a common theme of gifted people and adults also that are trying to lead creative lives. Because at a certain point, you carrying around a fear of outshining need to open up the other possibility of that, which is that you shining your light can inspire other people to shine their lights. In other words, instead of shrinking and hiding yours for fear other people will feel bad, you go ahead and go out to the edge with your genius because you come from a new context, and which is you're willing to let your light inspire other people rather than terrify other people. It's a much better way to go through life, I've found, as you walk down the street, instead of hiding your brilliance, to celebrate it and let people who are interested to celebrate that in themselves. I love this, by the way. I'm going to have to re-listen to this a couple of times to fully digest it, which is kind of how The Big Leap is. It was a short book, but it's dense. If you read past just the first layer of the words, it's really informational and packed. So, <laughs> Well, thank you. I worked hard on that. It took me, well, I would say It takes a year to write a book. The first half is writing a 400-page book, and the second half of the year is getting it down to be a 250-page book. My goal with The Big Leap was to give people the bare essentials because I really wanted people to have an action handbook that they could use and dip into at any point and get useful wisdom from it. The new book, The Genius Zone, takes things into a different dimension in a way because I have to come back on another occasion and talk to you about that because the big leap was about two big things. It was about your genius zone, how to occupy more of your genius zone, and how to overcome your upper limit. The new book, The Genius Zone, 
is about how to recognize genius moments when you can step right through that door into your genius effortlessly. The second thing, it's about how to make what I call the genius move, which is a way to directly access your genius without having to go down through the layers of your fear. You need to do that at a certain point, but you don't have to keep doing that always. Once you get good at opening up and getting your feelings on the line, you don't have to do much more except just keep increasing the awareness of that on a daily basis. But there are lots of ways you can access your genius on a daily basis. How does the upper limit interact with, say, intergenerational issues? So issues that didn't necessarily start with you, but maybe started with your grandparents or your great grandparents mm-hmm. or your or your parents. How, they what, are, what is the relationship to working through those types of upper limits? Very essential because almost none of us make up our own upper limit ourselves. We usually osmosis from somebody we were growing up around or we watch it being performed every day and sort of learn it unconsciously. If you watch your parents every time they get upset, slam the door and walk out of the room, you might have a tendency to do that same pattern. Whereas like I was just working with uh, a person this morning, a very successful person, CEO of a big business and everything, but still gets troubled because when she was little, her parents would get into these battles that sometimes the cops would have to be called. That's a different way of battling that a person couldn't help but learn. So interestingly enough, a lot of times we osmosis and keep it repeating, or you go to the opposite extreme. Because your family were screamers you become a strong, silent type because you don't want anything to do with that. (laughs) So you define yourself through rebellion. The important thing is to learn how to integrate all aspects of yourself so that you're not discriminating against any aspect of yourself. And particularly that allows you then not to discriminate against the wholeness of other people too. So the payoff is the more you can open up and lovingly accept yourself, the more you can do that uh, with other people. It's beautiful. Yeah, I hadn't thought about how a bunch of these upper limit issues probably do start way before us. I know that you mentioned in the book, but again, for me, it's always about blame Sam. You know, (laughs) it's all my fault. Almost all of them though, Sam, and almost any personal growth mission has to start with sincere, heartfelt commitment. Whether I'm sitting next to somebody in an airplane seat and strike up a deep conversation or talking with you folks right now, I always ask the question, and I'll ask it to you directly, are you willing to enjoy more and more of your genius every day of your life? If you say yes to that, then I ask you, would you make a commitment to bringing forth more and more of your genius every day of your life. Can you say yes to that? It's hard. I am currently working on kind of the curriculum for what's just going to be a small gathering of fathers and sons, kind of like a Robert Bly. And one of the ideas I really want to pass on to my 12-year-old son who's entering in adolescence is to honor commitments. It's a big commitment, Mm -hmm. what you just proposed. Am I willing to take incredibly good care, at least moderately great care of this chassis that I have, of these hands that have written and drawn everything I've ever written and drawn, and of these feet that have walked me every place I've ever gone. 
It's hard. The first thing that comes up when you directly look me in the eyes and you ask that question is, I'm going to fail. You can't mm. commit because you're not going to be able to follow through. That's just what- So it brings up that fear of failure because, see, a lot of people are reluctant to invite forth their genius because they're afraid that, well, what if I do and then I screw that up? Yeah. Or what if I do and then I fail at that? But having said all that, let me look you in the eye again and ask, would you be willing to make a commitment to bringing forth more of your genius every day of your life? Yes. I celebrate that. If you're listening or watching this out there, uh, if you do that too, I celebrate that because I always tell my students, the longest journey you will ever make is 12 inches from your head down to your heart. And to make a sincere, heartfelt commitment to bringing forth more of your genius every day is in itself a genius move because just the act of making a heartfelt commitment to that lines you up with forces in the universe that will then help you bring forth more of your genius as you go through just the organic daily living of your life because you have made that commitment. That's the way it is from now on. And so that commitment to bring forth your genius one of my favorite quotations comes from the Gospel of Thomas, which was one of the apocryphal Gospels that didn't make it into the official Bible, probably because it has radical stuff in it, like the quotation that I'm about to tell you. But I use the quotation in the Genius Zone. What it says is, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you savor the truth of that. You and I are both living testimonies to the power of that saying, because what if I, at 24, hadn't had that awakening and committed to bringing forth my genius? I didn't know what to call it at the time, but bringing forth that pure consciousness, who I was. Or imagine if you'd spent the last 10 years still being an addict. You might not even be here. Good chance that I wouldn't be. Yeah. I just felt a wave of sadness with, I knew Mike Williams. He was an actor. He came to fame on The Wire. He just died a couple of days ago from a drug overdose. He'd been struggling that with that for a long time. There's so much grief involved with addiction. <laughs> not, of course, just with the addict, but with all the community structure and family structure around you. So Mike's death, I know, touched millions of people that knew him as an actor and hundreds of people that knew him as a person. Yeah. Addiction and mental illness. We are heartbreakers, man. <laughs> I, I was talking to a mother of, of somebody I've come to know through the show is, is how we met. She got in touch with me and, and the mom is desperate for her to get clean and sober. It's tough. There's nothing that you can do to change that person. All you can do is have great boundaries. <laughs> There's a few things you can do, but you can't make that choice. You can't make the big leap for anyone else here on this planet, no matter how much you love them. Oh, yeah. I've learned that the sad way with relatives and friends that I haven't been able to intervene with them in a way that kept them from destruction. Also, to be honest about it, I come from a family lineage of addiction. So my brother and I sometimes joke with each other that we're going to be the first two members of our family to die of something other than addiction, because everybody in our past had some kind of addiction or another that eventually did them in from outright 
alcoholism or drug addiction to eating too much and all, all those kinds of things. So if you've managed to get out from under the grip of that particular one, take an extra moment of breath of celebration from yourself, wherever you're listening or watching this right now. Yeah, the patrons get to watch. Everyone else has to listen. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I... Well, you figured out how to turn these conversations into cash. Good on you. Well, not yet. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. So while I was not well this time around, because there's no ads, it's all just like NPR, like listener supported. I'm watching the people drop off from support for good reason. We have a give and take relationship and I wasn't giving and I wasn't producing anything. A handful of people stuck by me. That made getting therapy possible and stuck by me for over a year. It was very cool. It was very cool to be, held, to be held by these strangers who just I maybe on some level believe maybe I will come back to this, this thing that they've come to enjoy. Very cool. Well, I hope you do. I enjoy listening to your voice. You have a very pleasant voice to listen to for this kind of a medium. I do these all the time, and I don't say that idly or to compliment you for any other reason except to be honest about it. But I happened to notice when we started talking that you have a kind of voice that is made for this kind of medium. Thank you. For me... A lot of the online space right now feels really slick. It's like really slick and really polished. And that's just not my experience here on this planet. My point of view and my take on life is really hard earned. Being human has been a very painful experience for me <laughs> in many ways. Drug addiction, having a kid at 19 and not wanting to be a father. But I, like you, grew up without a father. So there was, well, we'll, we'll count my sobriety date. When I was 21 on was a a life of responsibility to things outside myself. Mm -hmm. That really, really hard uh, mental health. So it just feels nice to, and I'm sure there are other people, but just to be kind of like a, a conduit. Yeah, I, I don't want to be a teacher so much. I just want to be a, a human that can kind of fill the shoes of the other people that listen to this show and voice the questions they would have rather than talk about, oh, well, how, how great is life since I started putting a, uh, coconut oil in my coffee and now everything's better <laughs> <laughs> you know or something like that but to but to say hey i really do my best out here and i still struggle yeah. at times yes well your 30s contain the resolution of the biggest paradoxes of your life some of the big emotional tasks during your 30s are to get out from under the influence of your parents and your family create your own solid identity that factors in that, but isn't in rebellion against that or have any other kind of negative energy about that. You've just accepted that as part of your past. So that's a big challenge all in itself right there, especially if you have famous parents as you and I did. The second thing that's such a big thing is the integration of all your feelings and coming to terms with all the things you're angry about, sad about, scared about, coming to terms with your sexuality and embracing all of that in an accepting, loving way. That's what needs to happen for your peak evolution. That is not an easy task because you get down to some of those crystallized old bits of stuff like feeling unworthy or abandoned or those kinds of things, the crystallized grits of that usually hang on until you're up around 40. Oftentimes you have to keep opening up and integrating bigger and bigger spirals of all that. The great payoff of that, of course, is that once you get good at doing that, 
you become lightning fast and unstoppable because you're not dragging around all of that resistance with you that a lot of people never get out from under. I appreciate you for making the right choices and putting yourself in situations where you're going to keep favoring that wisdom part of yourself. And also, I encourage you to be even more loving of the destructive part of yourself. Understand that with your heart as well as, well as trying to understand it with your mind. Thank you. I know that's a part of the chapter of growth I'm in right now is through the hard way. I, I have learned how to be a pretty decent father and a pretty decent boyfriend or partner. My current evolution is to try and be more and more patient with my son and with my girlfriend, with my mom, more and more kind in a way that is not me losing my strength or losing my power. This is one of the things that I really looked up to. I haven't even touched you and Katie's work on relationships, which I know from a therapist friend of mine, I mentioned you were, you were going to be on the show. He said, oh my gosh, th those two do amazing stuff in relationships. So I know that <laughs> yeah. we might have to have you back or have Katie on or something because there's a whole well of information in your body of work that I haven't tapped on. I want to learn how to be more, more and more patient with other mm -hmm. people and more and more kind with other people. And it's tricky. <laughs> Definitely is. You're still resolving some gigantic paradoxes in yourself. So it's just like a sailor. Some days you're going to be trying to get your way through 12 foot waves. And the next day it's calm and you're going along with one foot waves. The waves will come as they always do. That's why every time I recommend just thinking of yourself as an evolving spiral that sometimes you're going to pass by the same issues as you come by them again from a little bit different perspective, a different level, level of wisdom, and you're going to keep spiraling upwards, upwards until there's just basically you and the air and the being in evolution. The currents themselves carry you because you've achieved a kind of lightness that then allows you to soar for long periods of time without coming down and crashing. It's beautiful. For your life, because I didn't want to mention this <laughs> uh, in the beginning of the show, but as I was doing the deep dive into you, it, it, one, you physically look like my father. So that's, <laughs> that's really? true. Yeah, he, he passed away and he never managed to be a, a good dad. I think that's one of the great losses of his, of his life is that he never self-actualized. Uh, and was not a father to his children. You're kind of the, the archetypal idea of what a, a good man I, I would want to to be and role model after. I, I love how how kind you are. I love how you still have that masculine virility and strength to you and, and power and that you weren't afraid to go into the world, into the arena, especially the business world and compete. You're not just a theorist. You were You were in there. And what are the things that you look back on? What are the lessons that you're so proud of yourself for working on? And in the remaining chapters ahead, what are the areas of your life that you want to continue to grow into? 
Well, in The Big Leap, you probably saw that the purpose of my life is what I call the ultimate success mantra, which is that I expand every day in love, creativity, and abundance as I inspire other people to do the same. I tried to create a life that I would never want to retire from. As long as I get to do that in whatever form comes up, 30 years ago, I was doing it on Oprah. Now there's no more Oprah, there's Sam. And now I'm doing it on Sam, but it's exactly the same energy. I'm exactly the same way as I was when I stepped on her stage and when we stepped on her stage back 30 years ago. To me, it's all the same. It's all trying to get more experience of deeper and deeper love and creativity and open up to my full genius as I inspire others to do the same. That to me is the sustaining intention behind my life. I feel in every moment the power of that thing that I'm calling pure consciousness. It's there all the time now. I'm aware of that and have been for decades now. But the beauty of that is that that means that I'm in a constant state of renewal and reinvention. That to me is priceless. That's the juice I run on. As long as I'm opening up every day more to my genius and finding new ways of inspiring other people to be with theirs, that's to me the sweet spot of living. Katie and I are in it together. We decided we were going to live and work and love together so that we were going to live a completely integrated life. And we managed to pull it off. Every day we high five each other because we managed to make our, our vision come true. Early on, what drove me was I wanted to first understand how to feel good inside myself. And then once I figured that out, how to feel good in relationship all the time, to feel the flow of intimacy. When problems came up, how to move through them in an evolutionary way so you didn't have to keep repeating the same problems over again. Most couples that come in here for couples counseling haven't had 500 arguments in their relationship. They've had 500 versions of the same argument. And so, <laughs> yeah, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was that way too. And I realized it would all, before I met Katie, I had this moment of enlightenment a month before I met Katie, where I realized, oh my God, I create every argument the same way. I don't tell the truth about something. And then I start criticizing my partner. And then she starts criticizing me back and I get defensive. And then we go around and round and round and round criticizing each other for three days or three weeks until we finally get sick of it and then say, okay, uh, let's get back together again. We had done that pattern over and over and over again until this one magic day. And I realized what the pattern was. And I realized, okay, I can end this pattern if I always tell the truth, if I always take responsibility for stuff that comes up instead of blaming the other person or getting defensive when they blame me, if I just take responsibility and say, okay, why am I creating this in my life right now? And the third thing, if I really commit to my creativity I'll be so engaged in my creativity that I won't even have time for relationship hassles. I did those three things. I got totally committed to being honest. I got totally committed to taking responsibility instead of blaming. And I got really committed to my creativity. A month later, I met this amazing woman. And in our first conversation, I said, I'd like to ask you out for coffee, but I got to tell you, I only want relationships where both people are committed to telling the truth, 
Both people are committed to taking responsibility when stuff comes up rather than blaming. And both people are committed to their creativity. So on those terms, would you go have a cup of coffee with me? (laughs) (sighs) And here we are 40 some years later. I love that. There's a there's a part in the book I just have to call out that was so perfect. We talk about where where people are escalating their victimhood to one up each other so that they are the victim. God, that was so spot on for me. Like, well, no, 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 you can't be mad because this is my 10 year sobriety anniversary and you're screwing it up. I waited 10 years. That was a real recent (laughs) fight that Georgie and I got into. I am also a time cop like you, and I want to be so respectful of the time that you've made for me. I can't wait to read The Genius Zone, and I'm sure we'll be in correspondence because I'm nosy like that, and I will try and work my way into your heart. So until the next time we speak, this is how I like to end the show. If I could hand you a cell phone right now and a younger version of yourself at any point in your life could pick up the phone and just get a brief message from from you now in the present, what would you want to say to that person, that version of yourself? I would say you can make faster, more rapid, deeper progress by loving yourself and appreciating yourself rather than beating up on yourself, which has been your old style of trying to motivate yourself. The more you can open up and learn to love yourself, the faster you'll move evolutionarily. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to keeping in touch and and reading your your new works and your other works that are already out there that I haven't gotten to yet. Jen Pasteloff wanted me to shout her out on the show. So, hey, Jen, (laughs) thank you for introducing us. (laughs) I love you to death. And uh, thank you for for introducing me to to this gentleman in front of me. Okay, I am so grateful that you exist as a human. And I'm grateful that you did the work to produce this book because it had a really meaningful impact on me. Mm-hmm. Well, as a resident father figure, let me just tell you, you're doing beautiful things in the world. You're creating a beautiful thing and you're bringing forth beauty in a way that I'd love to have you celebrate because I celebrate it. Thank you, Gay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you have an incredible day. Remember, if you enjoyed this program, I invite you to be a part of its success by going to iTunes and giving us a review. People look at it. Potential guests do look at how many reviews we have on iTunes. It's kind of like a hint to how big our audience is. Share this episode with a friend or family member who you think you would enjoy. We can create a grassroots kind of growth and make the show stronger and more sustainable. And if you're not already, go to patreon.com slash howtohuman, help support us financially and become a member of our community, which is a awesome place to be. Until next time, have a great day.